Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity again to speak your word and to bring nourishment to our hearts through your word and through your spirit. And we pray this morning, God, that your anointing would fall upon us and that we would hear, Lord God, what the spirit would have us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, spoke last week concerning restoration, and we talked about the wall being broken down in our homes, in our churches, in our community. And uh, this morning, I would like to uh, talk about the prophet Nehemiah, man of God, who was a cupbearer for the king. And uh, God is calling us, I believe, to be Nehemiah people, and we must become that type of person who has the desire to tear down the walls of our soul, our church, and our community. And you say, what, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, it's so easy to lie to ourselves about our needs and about our condition. It's so easy to fall into denial and try to deny that we need repair. And there's not a, a person in this world that doesn't need some sort of repair through Christ. And uh, we must repent. And people say, that's a harsh word, Pastor. We must repent over the three walls, our soul, our church, and our community. The three walls that circle us. And you say, why? Because in many instances, we have allowed the wall to be broken. We've invited sometimes through our own transgressions, through our own decisions, we've invited the enemy to come in and take out a few bricks, take out a few walls. And sometimes people don't want to accept that or hear that. But we know one thing, in order for healing to take place, you have to recognize the problem. Because if you don't recognize the problem, you'll live in denial your whole life and you'll die in denial. We must allow God to rebuild the wall of our soul especially. And rebuild the wall of our churches and our communities in America. We must identify the broken walls in each of these three areas. We must ask ourselves what has been our participation, what has been our contribution in causing these walls to be torn down. What is it in our lives that need to be addressed cleaned out and healed by the power of God. We must make an honest identification of the ruins and then be accountable to God and other Christians in our plan to rebuild. I want to read that again. We must make an honest identification. We must identify the problems. We can't bury our heads in the sand. We can't turn away. We must look at our situation. And then we must become accountable to God concerning the broken walls and then accountable to other Christians to help rebuild the walls of our soul, of our churches, and of our community. In Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3, now Nehemiah has a cushy job, a dangerous job, because he's the cupbearer. So that means he must drink from the cup and taste the food that the king is going to eat before anyone else. And if anyone tries to poison the king, Nehemiah dies first. And then the king knows not to drink from the cup, and he knows not to eat the food. 
But Nehemiah was a respected person. He was a man of God. And people came to him, and they said unto him, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Why would he care? He lives in the king's palace. He's got a good life. He's got a good retirement plan. He's got great benefits. Why would Nehemiah even care about people in a distant land that originally disobeyed God and God brought out a remnant and put them into captivity? Why would he even care? What is a remnant? It's those people that remain from the whole. Those that are left alive. Those that have survived. Those that have been left over. A remainder of the whole. A part of the pie. And they're held up in a culture that's not theirs. And they've been in captivity. But there's a remnant. And I believe there's a remnant. A church within a church. That God wants to raise up in the last day. The house of Joseph. People like Nehemiah. And in the next verse in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. And it came to pass when he heard these words. What words? That the wall was broken down and the gates were on fire. He was concerned. Again, ask yourself, why was he concerned? And he says, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He doesn't even know these people. He's not with these people. Again, why does he care? He heard these words. What words? Words about people in affliction. Words about people in reproach. Words about people that were being made fun of. Whose harps were hung up on the trees in captivity. Sing us a song, Jewish people. Sing us some of those church songs so we can make fun of you. I see your harps are hung up upon the trees. Come on, sing for us. Hmm. Perform. Words concerning people whose lives were broken and whose gates were on fire. The cry of the human heart, as Juan Carlos Ortez, pastor of many years ago, used to say and wrote a book on, the cry of the human heart. Understand the pain that Nehemiah was experiencing for others who were downtrodden and beaten. People in general have become selfish. People in general have become egotistical. People in general are usually concerned about their own needs and their own wants and their own desires. And they're not worried about other people they hear about. They're not concerned about the walls that are broken down in other people's homes or lives or families. We hear words. Did you hear? We go to the grocery store and someone stops us and we hear, did you hear? That so-and-so's son died of an overdose. Did you hear that so-and-so's daughter committed suicide? Did you hear? And we continue down the aisle and we buy our cereal. And we buy our food. And we seem sometimes unmoved except for the moment of emotion. That someone has been afflicted very seriously. And that someone has lost a child or someone close to their heart. Understand the pain 
that he was experiencing. People who were left behind and out of their native country. What happens to us when people come into our lives with such devastation? Do we turn ourselves away from them? Do we close our eyes? Are we concerned? Are we compassionate? How about when someone comes into your life to point out ruins and gates that are on fire in your own heart that needs to be rebuilt? We become aversive to people when they begin to approach us in intimacy. We become aversive to people when we see that they perhaps have drunk from the cup of poison. That they may have eaten something that's not good for them spiritually. And we begin to approach them. And we walk on eggshells because we are in approach avoidance situation. Should we say something? Should we hold back? God, what do you want me to do? Will I look foolish? Will they not be my friend? Will they not love me anymore? Will they turn on me? These are questions that we all have to ask ourselves. And each and every one of us is put in those kind of predicaments during our lifetime. And I think more and more as time goes on, because people are hurting. Do we allow ourselves the understanding that we too are in affliction and in need of help? A lot of times we don't admit that we need help. A lot of times we try to endure it. We try to push through it. We try to medicate. We try to pacify ourselves with pleasures of the world and think, well, if I do this and go there, I won't have to think about it. Some people repress it so badly that it's not even in their conscious memory anymore. They suppressed it so far. They've stuffed so many emotions down into their being that they're just like robots that we're seeing in the world. Like zombies walking around the earth proclaiming, I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel. I don't want to be emotional. But yet, we all have emotion. Whether it's emotion of elation, emotion of sorrow, emotion of anger, we all have emotions. And we deal with those emotions in different ways. What is What is God saying here to us ourselves? Do we allow ourselves to listen and understand that we need healing sometimes in our lives? And we've all had the experience while we try to approach someone concerning healing. Not because we know everything, maybe because we've experienced it. And we're trying to help them not skin their knee or break their arm. But we're repulsed. We become the outcast. We become the, become the illegitimate child at the family reunion, so to speak. Because we don't want to come face to face with truth. And we don't want to come face to face sometimes with the anointing of God. Right. Nehemiah did six things when he heard about the devastation of his fellow brothers and sisters who were Jewish. He heard. I said to my wife recently, I've noticed something about life lately. You're having a conversation with someone and you may be relaying a story to them. And as you begin to tell the story, you look at their nonverbal communication, which I studied in graduate school. It was a fantastic course. And you notice that they're fading and they're not even listening to you. And you go on with your story thinking, I have to complete the story because I would really look foolish 
but you begin to feel feelings in your own heart, like your heart's on fire because the person isn't really giving you their undivided attention. And then what they're really saying is, I don't really care about your story. I don't really care about you finishing your story. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to hear it from the beginning. And that causes people to shut down. I've noticed that in life. I noticed that in the workforce, where you start speaking to someone and they start walking away from you. Like you're a no count, like you don't matter. And I see that in life and in society now, where it's almost like people become bored with you because they don't want to hear perhaps what you have to say. Well, Nehemiah heard the cry of the human heart. He heard about devastation. And he listened intently and understood the full scope of the situation when it was reported to him as the cupbearer. It was so overwhelming that he sat down, which means the news was so overbearing and sorrowful that he had to sit down to brace himself for the emotion that accompanied the, the news in the situation. Have you ever been there? What do people say before they want to tell you something really bad? You might want to sit down. You might want to sit down. Many times in my experience as a chaplain through the years, I had to tell people about death. And a person would come in my office and they would be really jittery and restless. And they'd pace a little bit and I said, you might want to sit down, son. Because I've had, got some sorrowful bad news for you. And then they look at you for a moment like a deer in a headlight. And sometimes you have to get the person and help them sit. And say, look at me. I have some news for you. I know you don't want to hear. But I have to tell you that your mom passed away. And then there's a whole new ball game that opens. Because there's a flood of emotion in that person. But not only in that person, but in the person telling them about the death. Because it brings back all those people in your life. Particular people. Specific people. Specific times. And it brings that emotion as it triggers it into your heart. And you begin to feel empathetic toward the person. You don't see a prisoner at that time. You don't see a client. You don't see a drug addict. You don't see an alcoholic. You don't see that. You see a human being that was given birth to by some mother. Through her womb, this child was born. And now this person is devastated. Hmm. I have to believe that Nehemiah felt similarly as he sat down to brace himself to hear this news that his fellow brothers and sisters were in devastation in a foreign land. He didn't try to escape. He didn't try to deny. But what he was doing was he was digesting or ingesting the news. And at that moment, I believe in his heart, he was saying to himself, what can I do about the situation? And we've all been there. Because we all have been at times where we want to fix it. We want to fix it. I was going through some notes the other day. And I was reading about Moses. And Moses went out and he saw this Egyptian beating up this Jewish person. And Moses wanted to fix it. 
And he ended up killing the Egyptian. Sarah, who was barren, who God promised a child, got antsy. And she wanted to fix it. And she said to Abraham, go into Hagar, my handmaid, impregnate her. And at 86 years old, Abraham became a dad. Did that fix it? No, we're still experiencing the problem in the Middle East of Hagar giving birth to Ishmael. We try to fix it. You cannot fix it without the anointing of God. And sometimes you have to sit down. And even though you're devastated, even though you're out of sorts because of the news that's perhaps come to your life, you have to believe that there's a God in heaven, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that will sit down with you and hold your hand and say, I can fix this. Don't try to do it on your own. Don't force the fix. Great place to say amen. amen. Sometimes when God sends Christian people into our lives to point out the runes, we must understand their intent is healing. And we must sit down to embrace the emotion that will accompany the unveiling of our hearts. When someone walks toward you, they're not the enemy. Sometimes they just know in the spirit the future. Sometimes they're prophetic. Sometimes they try to help the person not to experience more pain. Sometimes it's hard to swallow the fact that we have some ruins that need to be dug out and then rebuilt upon. None of us like to admit ruins. None of us like to admit failure. None of us like to admit wrong decision making. We've all been there. There's a time that comes to our life where we have to sit down and say to ourselves, where am I going? I put a new post up this morning early about vision on the internet. There's no future in the past. There's no vision in the past. There's none. But yet people are trying to pull from the past and create some vision, some reality. That's not a reality. And you see it, you want to scream. You hear people say, I, I, I should have. I should have done that. Should have, would have, could have. But who are you now? Where are you now? And the question is, where are you going? Because if you want to go back there, there's no future there. The future is ahead, praise God. That's why Jesus went up the hill. That's why he took the cross. That's why he went up the mountain. That's why he was crucified, so that we might have a future. And that God, praise God, might overcome our sins. And might overcome our wrong decision making. And swallow it up by the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Jesus. Our sins were nailed to the cross. Our past was nailed to the cross. The curses in our family generation and line were nailed to the cross. 
Our ruins were nailed to the cross. Our devastations were nailed to the cross. Our failures were nailed to the cross. But yet we walk around them. Jesus said, take up that cross. He didn't say, take up your past. He didn't say, take up your ruins. He didn't say, take up your devastation. He didn't say, take up your wrong decision making. He said, get on with life in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you've got a long way to go, praise God, before the rapture comes. It's no time to quit. It's no time to give up. And it's no time to put our trust in the arm of flesh. You put your trust in the Bible. The God that created you is the God that's still on your side. I said the God that, praise God, bore you from your mother's womb, that he started a good work in your life. He said, I am able to perform it until that day. What day? Praise God. The day of the Lord. The day of Jesus coming. People are hiding. They're going, becoming reclusives in society. They're standing on the ledge saying, I'm going to jump. For what? Are you serious? Jump for what? It's time. Sometimes when someone comes into your life and says, move on. It's hard to swallow. I read a story this morning of a great football quarterback, Andrew Luck. Prematurely last night announced his retirement from football. He said, I can't take the pain anymore. I, I, I just can't. It's been four years of rehabilitation, and, and it reminded me of the last competitive baseball game I pitched in. I was opening day pitcher. And I went to the mound, and I began to pitch. And I felt something. I felt something wrong in my arm. And I knew on that mound that day, that would be the last competitive game I would play in as a pitcher. And I started throwing, and I threw on purpose knowing my arm was hurt. Because I said to myself, this is it, I can't take it no more. I, I can't take needles in my elbow, I can't take needles in my knee, I can't take needles in my ankle, I can't take cortisone no more. I can't take pain, I can't, I can't take it no more. And I threw my arm out on purpose, and the umpire came out and stopped the game. And he said, son, you're hurt. I said, yes, sir. I am. And I walked off that mound for the last time in a competitive game, never to again take upon a uniform, get on a field, or get on a pitcher's mound to throw a baseball in a competitive game. It was over. I was devastated. I was in ruins. I was young, had a lot of promise, but always injured. But God picked up my ruins. Because I listened to the wisdom of my dad. And my dad said, son, very few make it. And he told me that when I started playing. He said, go to school, get an education, become something, do something different with your life. And I listened to my dad. And I didn't want to listen to him. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to hear it. But I took his counsel. And I went to night college. And I started with just a few courses. And I worked for $1.30 an hour in a department store as a stock boy. School 
college, still dreaming, but knowing that I would never play again. God did something different in my life. Little did I know I'd be a preacher for over four decades of my life. Little did I know that I would marry a wonderful Christian woman. Little did I know that God would give me wonderful children and family and grandchildren because God was still steering my ship. He saw the ruins. He saw the devastation of my dreams, but it wasn't his dream. It wasn't his reality. It wasn't his will. Oh, I questioned. Even young when I didn't even really know God. Why? Why? But yet I look back on my life, and don't get me wrong, I would like to go out there and pitch one more game. I like to feel the excitement of throwing a ball past a batter and saying, gotcha. I'd like to. But it probably will never happen competitively. But here's what I'm trying to say. Nehemiah wept which means he cried and bewailed. And sometimes when we're in ruins and devastation, we weep. I think that's something missing in the church. We don't weep over our ruins anymore. We don't weep over our devastation anymore. We don't weep with others anymore. We don't come to the altar and and have the, the, the stain of tears on the altar anymore like we used to in the old church where people cried with each other and held each other and stayed as long as they needed. That's right. Come on. Preach it. We have a microwave church today. Quick prayers. Quick, come on, God, we got to go home. We got we to gotta go to a, a, a game or a race. We got golfing at 1 o'clock. Got no time for God? Got no time for the Ten Commandments? Got no time to keep the holy day uh, of Sunday Sabbath holy? We got no time for that, God. Don't you know we're busy? We're busy making money. I, I don't think it says up there, Seek ye first the kingdom of mammon and, and its righteousness. I think it says the kingdom of God because you know what? When we disobey God, God will get that money somehow from you. Because it's not his will. We will bring our own ruins and devastation sometimes. Not only did Nehemiah hear and weep, but he mourned, which means he mourned and lamented as, as if someone died in his life. Why does he care? These people are so far away. Why does he care? And some people say, why do you care? You care because you've been there. You've been in the gutter. You've been down and out. You've had somebody put their foot on your neck and try to take the breath out of your life. You've been there when someone broke your heart and broke your dreams. You've been there. You've been devastated. Your building is on fire. You've been there. That's why you care. And that's why you mourn. The ministry of tears is absent in our churches. And altars as we seem hard and resolute. We seem like we don't want to show emotion or feelings. We, We take pride in that. We take pride that we don't feel. What's wrong with us? 
What are we, robots? I go online and I try to order something and I have to check this box that I'm not a robot. I'm not a robot. I'm a person with feelings. And if I stuff those feelings, it's abnormal. Because even Jesus wept. Even Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with great drops of blood that came through his arms and veins. Because he was so overwhelmed about drinking the cup for me and you. We cannot be zombies. We cannot act like we've got it so together. Like we don't want to feel. What's wrong with us? We need the ministry of tears back in the church. We need ministry of tears for our family and for our country. We're divided. And we're not weeping. We must mourn to process the death properly so God can allow the corn of, the corn of wheat, our life, to die and resurrect through his son Jesus. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. We've got to give God all of our dreams. We've got to give God all of our stuff. And we've got to say, God, I'm going to plant it in the garden. And Lord, what you want to raise up again, please do so. But God, if it's dead, don't let it come through the ground. Don't give me a false hope or a false vision or a false reality of something that's never going to happen. Let it die. The Bible says Nehemiah was moved so badly that he fasted, meaning he abstained from food, not to cloud his understanding or emotions with pleasant bread that would ease his pain and satiate the sorrow. That's what we do in society today. We ignore it. We become lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God because we don't want to deal with it. It's too painful. kind of like in marriage the most hurtful words a man could ever hear in marriage or in any relationship is when when a woman says to a man we have to talk Ooh, hello men don't want to hear that Nehemiah fasted He, he didn't want to hear this stuff But he said, you know what? This is too overwhelming for me to ignore. I have to hear it. And not only do I have to hear it, but I have to ask God, what's my play? What's my play? He wanted to be completely open and have an honest heart before God to receive instructions that he may proceed spiritually. Listen to that. Are we open to God? So that we can proceed spiritually and wholly connected to God. Fasting was Nehemiah's way of saying he was more concerned and mandated by God to do something about the situation than he was concerning his own life at that moment. The last thing in this verse that Nehemiah did was to pray. Which means he entreated God and interceded to God for the needs of his people. Again, I have to say, why did he care? He was intent on having a conversation with God concerning the matter. So that he could fully proceed with the spiritual blessings and backing of God. 
This is a great man. This is a man that we should emulate. This is, this is a, a, a man in the Bible that stands out, that we should imitate. He said in verse 5 of Nehemiah 1, and, and I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. I beseech thee. What was he saying? Right now, God, we need to have a conversation about what's going on in a distant land. He's serious and he's earnest about his prayers. There's a sense of urgency in his voice. Like, this is on my shoulders. This is my assignment. This is my plateful. We like to go around saying, my plate is full. Nehemiah said, this is my plateful. So what do I do with it, God? Do I go to the trash can and dump it? Do I turn the plate upside down? Do I go back to my work as the cupbearer for the king and say, hey, listen, I heard your cry, but you know what? It's not my business. It's not my business. We must be earnest and we must be serious about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in great affliction, whether it's locally or internationally. We have to feel again. We have to have apathy again. We have to have empathy again. We have to have an emotional attachment and an intimacy again. So many people want to be let off the hook. They don't respond to us. They walk away. I don't want to talk about it. I don't look for a relationship. I'm not looking for friendship. We're ending up like the book of Haggai where people went into their sealed panel homes. Their homes of pleasure. They have beautiful homes. While the house of God laid waste for 13, 14 years and only was in cinder block. And Zerubbabel, and King Cyrus, and Nehemiah, and Ezra had to wake up the people and say, How long will you sit in your homes? While the house of God lays waste, where you used to have relationship, where there was joy and singing. And I see that today, where people don't want to be bothered with relationship, intimacy, or friendship. It's almost like I can't deal with that because I have to deal with myself if I have to deal with that. I have to look at myself and my ruins. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6, it says, He's talking to God, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open. I want your attention, God. I'm looking at you face to face. That thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, he calls those people servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we, look what he said. Which we, he included himself have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. It wasn't like Nehemiah was saying, hey, listen, man, it's all about you. The preacher always gets the sermon first. I said the preacher always gets the sermon first. And sometimes you fight with the sermon that God is saying, say it. But I don't want to. Because I like friendship. 
I like love. I like relationship. And I know it's going to set people off sometimes. Because God said the word comes to divide. And I know sometimes I'm going to feel the pain. I'm going to feel the affliction. I'm going to feel the ruin in my own soul for preaching. But what do I do, God? Do I obey you? Or do I cry for friendship? I have to obey him. And I'm not saying that the preacher is always right, because he's not. And God deals with the preachers, not people. Hear what I'm saying? I said God deals with preachers, not people. We're hired by God, not by people. We're called by God. And when we're called into his schoolhouse, and we're called into his woodshed, we have to take what he gives us. If we've missed it. Don't get me wrong. There's no preacher that stands behind a pulpit that's infallible. We all miss it. But like our pastor used to say, look at the intent and the sincerity of my heart. Look at the sincerity of my heart. Ask yourself, does the pastor care? And listen, under his ministry, you have to wear steel-tipped shoes and boots. Because he stepped all over you. He stepped all over you. Because that was his job. And I have to say, one of our sisters that was in that church is 80 years old today. We're still friends. She wrote a book about her life with the Lord. And she's still working for God at 80. She says, I, I can't believe I'm 80 years old. Sister, you're old stock, if you're listening to the sermon. You're old stock, sis. We were raised in that church. We were raised in that altar. And when God didn't move, he called the entire church to the altar and sent us back to our seats. And God didn't move. He, he brought us back four or five times. That's my wife. Until God moved. He says, we didn't come here for a hay barn. We didn't come here for a hay ride. We didn't come here for a song and a dance. We came here for the anointing of God. And God's going to move. When we obey him, he was a taskmaster. But as it was prophesied in his ministry, his ministry went to the four corners of the earth. He himself in India won one million souls to the Lord. He's old. He's been hospitalized. His wife passed away. And I'm sure he wants to go home to be with the Lord. But his ministry still lives. And I pray if I ever get into that situation that the ministry that God has given me will live down to the next generations. Nehemiah pleads with God to listen. Have you ever been in a desperate situation that you pleaded with God to listen? Open your eyes, God, and let my cry be heard for the children of Israel, thy servants. By faith, Nehemiah addresses them as servants, servants who sinned against thee. Come on, God, let's be honest. We blew it. Notice in his prayer of repentance that Nehemiah includes himself by saying, we have sinned against thee. And if we're going to rebuild the walls of our lives, of our church and our community, the leaders of God, the leaders of God must include themselves in the prayer of repentance as they lead God's people back to the cross of Calvary. So much nonsense is taking place in the church world. 
so much hoopla, so much prosperity, appealing to the lusts of people. It's manipulation, it's witchcraft, it's the occult. It's charismatic witchcraft. And you have to sit down and weep sometimes when you see it and you say to yourself, wow. Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 1 and 7, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor your judgments, which thou commanded thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, this is what God told Moses, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Exactly what happened. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather thee from thence and will bring thee into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. He said, I'll bring you back home. I'll bring you back home. It's kind of like Wednesday night when we were talking in Bible study about the preacher who was praying three hours a day and gave his God three hours and then it went to two hours. Then it went to one hour and he was too busy. And he saw his life begin to fragment again because he wasn't spending time with God. And he decided to go back to God in prayer and God's words to his heart was, Welcome back. We have to hear God say, welcome back. As we seek him in prayer. He says, Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand, O Lord. I beseech thee, let not now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, that thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. What was he saying? Come on, God, help me. And you know, it's kind of like Peter when he was walking on the water. And he got his eyes off Jesus. And he started to sink and drown. And all he could say was, Lord, save me. And Jesus, with his right hand, picked him up out of that water and brought him back up and save them. You know, sometimes when we're devastated, and sometimes when it seems like our life and heart is in ruins, the only thing we can say is, Lord, save me. Amen. No big prayers. No big ecclesiastical words. No these or thous. But God, I'm hurting. And God, I need your help. <laughs> I remember many years ago, in a boarding house in Radford, Virginia. There was a young man, wanted love, wanted a wife, and a grown man, I kneeled down by my bed and I prayed this prayer to God. I said, Lord, you said in the Bible, it's not good for a man to be alone. You said. And no longer, no sooner did I pray that prayer that God spoke to my heart and said, I'll send you someone better. Mm 
Three weeks later, in an upper room in a church, a young woman walked in with a guitar case on parents' weekend. And I looked at that woman, and I said, wow, she's pretty. I'm a man. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you'll marry her within one year. I didn't even know her name. She's sitting right there, almost 45 years later, Amen. that we'll be married, March 1st. How did that happen? When you get desperate with God, and you tell God of your loneliness, and your heartbreak, he will restore. Amen. He will restore. He'll give you something that you need, not that you want. Something you need, not what you want. He'll give you his desire, his dream. Because that's his will. And so many people make the mistake when they're devastated. They make the mistake of not leaning upon God's spirit and say, I'm done. I can't do this. I need your help. Why are the walls broken today? Because we have dealt corruptly and we have not kept the commandments of God in our homes in America and in our country. We have broken our spiritual vows before God by not keeping and guarding and giving heed to and retaining the word of God, which is the treasure in the earthen vessel. Jesus is the word, and we've disregarded his declarations as a people. He, he's become like secondary. He, he's not the priority. And until we make him the priority will not be restored. The ministry has prostituted the altar of God and the church for pros prosperity and success. Give God a dollar. Give you ten. <clears throat> Send money. We want to build buildings. Look what we're building. For who? Yeah. Listen to me. They even call their ministries by their own name. Because they don't want to be forgotten. The Bible says in Psalm 49 and 11, what a mistake. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, their ministry by their name. And their dwelling places to all generations, they call their lands, their ministries after their own names. It's not my ministry. It's not Fred Colombo Ministries. It's the ministry of Jesus in a person. And he gets the credit he gets the glory. He gets the honor because it's his anointing. It's not about our abilities. It's about our availabilities before God. Amen. But men boast. Men boast about their ministries. We're the biggest in the world. We're on these television stations. Keep us on the air. You think bigger is better? Is that what we think in America? Bigger is better? When God says and refers to the church as his little flock. When all of Jesus did for three and a half years and all the people and multitudes that came to him, only 120 people were in the upper room as a church. It's not a very large church. For a man that raised the dead. For a son of God that made the deaf ears to hear and the blind to see. For one that walked on water. For one that did miracles. Where were those people? Where were the ten lepers? Only one gave thanks. I've seen that. I've seen people bless so, so good. 
that their saps will bust off that I don't need God anymore. Look what I got. What's Jesus saying? He's not going to allow the ministry to be prostituted much longer. Something has to happen. Something has to give. His father's house is a house of prayer. I'm so sad to hear that the chapel that I preached in for over two decades that once was filled with men and women who came every week is being turned into a recreation hall with pool tables and ping pong tables. I said, wow, we've made my father's house a house of thieves. That's not what God's will is. That we take out the spiritual part of a program. That we take out Jesus and we don't need you no more, God. They rode that glory for 20 years. They boasted about that church for 20 years to the state. I don't care if it's on tape. They rode that wave because they liked it. It brought notoriety. But when the shepherd leaves, the flock scatters and the wolves come in and destroy the house of God. Prostituted. Prostitute, spiritual fornication. Jesus went unto the temple of God and cast them all out that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changes and the seats of them that sold doves and, and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Hmm. Restoration is in order one place, person at a time. We must rebuild the way God wants to build. Not by brick and mortar, but by man, woman, boy, and girl who has become the habitation of God. We must promise God's creation. We must promote God's creation and not our creation. I see so many people on Facebook and they add to their story. What, what is your story? We need to add to God's story and tell people God's story. It's not my story. It's God's story through me. But so many people want to add to their story. What are you adding? What are you showing me? A picture? That's your story? Where you went? Where you ate? That's your story? That's nice. But where's God in your life, my friend? Where's God at the end of the line? Where's God when you close your eyes for the last time? Where's God? Is he going to be available to you? Praise the Lord. <laughs> What good is it to have a big building with a big congregation that's either dead spiritually or emotionally with no spiritual pulse or heartbeat? I don't know. What are we bragging about that we've assembled the captive in heart, the captive in emotion in a beautiful building? Look how many people we have. Is that really so different from the Jewish people being held captive in Egypt or in Babylon? We have to set the people free. We have to see people healed by the power of the Almighty. Let us build the real building. Restoration is in order one person at a time. Praying for one another, mentoring, discipling one life to the point where they could do the same for a brother or a sister who is hurting in their soul. Let us become Nehemiah people who help restore a soul from brokenness and devastation and ruins. This is what God has called us to to awaken the spiritual dream in another, 
that the baton might be passed from one another in this great spiritual race and in the end from one great gigantic circle throughout the earth that bond us hand in hand with words written I restored, we're restored, we're restored we must join together to fight the great fight of faith and rebuild the walls of our church rebuild the walls of marriage rebuild the walls of our community people say who am I? You're a person saved by God, set forth by God, an ambassador of Christ, an ambassador of what? Of the kingdom of God. The true church will be restored. Jesus said, will I find faith on the earth when I return? And I pondered that question. And I gave myself an answer spiritually. Yes, they will. Because there will be a raptured church that he speaks about. He will find faith on the earth. They'll come in the last day as scoffers. And they'll say, where is the promise of his coming, as they said in the book of Peter? Where is this rapture, pastor? Where is this Jesus that you have preached for... Forty-something years. Where, where is he? Oh, he's coming. Oh, he's coming. Don't worry. He's coming. He'll split the Mount of Olives one of these days. The new Jerusalem will come down. He's coming. You know how I know it? Because he said it. And it's in his word. It's in the Bible. It's, he's coming. And maybe sooner than we know. Because this world is about to combust. This world is about to explode. This world is about to hemorrhage. This world has given birth to evil that I don't believe God can turn his eyes away from much longer. As I close, we must look at the verses. John 17 and 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which believe in me through the word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You are an ambassador that can bring hope to the hopeless. You're a representation if you so desire to be that representation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised. Many are waiting for us to come into their lives. Let us rebuild the walls of our lives through Christ that we may help rebuild the walls of others. The goal of restoration is helping others out of their aloneness and isolation, which is really self-preservation and trying to figure out life by yourself. Look at that again. The goal of restoration is helping others out of their aloneness. So many people say, I'm alone. And isolation, which is really self-preservation and trying to figure out life by yourself. Through Christ, we must help them out of their cave of protection and security, and help them begin a transformation toward God 
where they are no longer bitter toward God, but better for God. We must join forces with them and enter a new phase with those that God places us with. Not to just be an army that's assembled, but to become an army that's moving in the Holy Spirit, becoming warriors and more than conquerors through Him that loves us. It's time. It's time. It's time to rebuild. It's time to look at the ruins and the devastation. 60 million babies that have been aborted. Suicide, drug addiction, alcoholism, pornography. It's consuming our society. It's consuming mankind. It's consuming the souls of men and women and boys and girls now. We have a work to do. Some people say, well, it's such a big work, Pastor. What does it mean? The widow woman who gave two mites became famous. Not the rich man. Give God your two cents, so to speak. I'm not talking about money. Do what you can do in the circle you live in. A kind word. It touched my heart yesterday when that retired military officer said to me, thank you for being a human being. I said, God bless you. That touched me. Because you know what? A lot of people who wear uniforms, a lot of policemen, a lot of people who are in legal services and law enforcement are being dissed like they're the enemy. And they go out every day with a gun on their hip to protect society from the bad men. And yet we're disrespecting them. What's wrong with us? Who do people call for? Call 911. Who do you think's coming? The guy with the gun on his hip. Well, you're getting beat behind doors and he doesn't know when he knocks down that door what he's going to face. A crazed man on crack with a gun. How many officers have been shot in the last week doing their job? We need restoration. And we need to raise the bar of expectation in our homes and in our churches and stop playing games and denying we have a problem. Houston... We have a problem. The rocket went off course and it's not doing what it's supposed to do. We need some help. God, give us some help to get that rocket, the church, our families, our homes, our marriages, our children back on course so that, God, we can hit the target for Christ and for your kingdom. God bless you and thank you for listening.